Well, I know that I'm a slow pastor, and this is a big chapter before us this morning with lots and lots of stuff that's wonderful things that would take a lot of time. So I'm not even going to attempt to try to tackle all that is here in this chapter this morning. This morning I'm simply in my best effort to at least catch some of the, the essence of this chapter want us to focus really on three things. I want us to look, as we've been following Abram all the way along in looking at Abram's life here through the book of Genesis, we've been looking at, as we call our series, following God's promise, God's promise, God's covenant with Abram. This morning I want us to look at the the grace of God's promise, the certainty of the promise, and the responsibility of the promise. Really just this morning going to read the first eight verses here of chapter 17 of Genesis. You'll have to read the rest of the chapter on your own. I'll refer to parts of it. But really all of the three main points are going to find really even in the very first verse. Let me read these first verses. Actually, just the opening words, I'll start there. It begins with when Abram was 99 years old. What that does, for many things, it tells us how old he is, but it also, you see, is there for to connect this chapter with the chapter before. If you'll look just to the verses, to the verse right before this, the last verse of chapter 16, it says Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Then it begins when Abram was 99 years old. You see, it's designed to tie these two together. At the end of last week's fiasco, there in chapter 16, Abram ended at 86. And now as this chapter opens, he's 99. Fourteen years since he and Sarah took God's promise into their their own hands, trying to accomplish by their, their own devices what they thought God wanted Having a son through Sarai's maid, Hagar, they succeeded in bringing about a son, Ishmael, but also brought about intense trouble into their home and apparently 14 years of silence from God. And you wonder, is God done with Abram? I'm sure Abram and Sarai had wondered that. After two strikes, striking out in their failure of faith and going to Egypt and striking out here again with this whole episode with Hagar, has God given up on them, these 14 years of silence? Has God just written them off? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for 
for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. What a surprise, a shock, and a great encouragement and blessing I'm sure it was to Abram when God appears and speaks to him. God reaffirms His promises. God in His grace reaches down to fallible men and gives grace. There is hope for restoration after faithlessness and and after sin. As the Apostle Paul will later write in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, a verse that many of us are familiar with, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. There's good news here, for there is good news to those of us who fail. How many of you have ever sinned? How many of you, after you became a Christian, you sinned? Oh, see, that's, that's kind of most of us. <laughs> we know that the Scripture says if any man says he doesn't sin, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. What good news that God is a God of grace. I ask, have you sinned? You may, you may have failed in your integrity at work. You may have failed in your relationships at home. You may have compromised your sexual purity Perhaps become addicted to some behavior or some substance or you become bitter or angry or malicious or even cruel. The good news, even in this opening verse here in in this chapter, is that for those of us who are failures and sinners, regardless of what you've done, God wants to extend His grace to you to restore you and to bless you. And He calls for you to return to Him and discover His grace. He calls for you in the very same way that He called to the rebellious nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, they will be as wool. Abram and Sarai messed things up. But God didn't give up on them. He didn't write them off. There's grace for fallible men with an unfailingly faithful God. Abram and Sarai messed up, but God brought them back. I wonder if you've probably seen commercials on TV. If you ever watch TV, you can't avoid commercials. And I wonder if you've ever seen commercials and, and, and you watch them and you go, wow. You know, they're advertising a knife. It can cut its way through a brick and still slice tomatoes into Thin little little slices of tomato. It's awesome. You ever sent off, you know, and oh, we got on the phone and called and said, I gotta have one of those. And 
found that it's not quite what they said it was. Or maybe you got on, you know, Craigslist, we're looking for a car, and it says it's in excellent condition, and there's the picture of it. Whoa! And then you get there to look at it, and you decide, you realize that their definition of excellent is a little different than yours. It all just depends on the angle at which you look at it. You know, it's excellent except for this one little view. <laughs> or you see him advertising some drug that's a miracle cure for whatever, and then they follow it with five minutes of <laughs> of warnings, you know. And they say them real fast. You know, well, some people have had their appendages fall off, and some people have had a severe shortage of breath, <laughs> like they stopped breathing and died, and... But you still want this miracle drug. And oh, yeah. We've kind of gotten used to the fact that there's a lot of hype and a lot of promises that are made aren't anything like what the actual product is. How different God is. When God first gave the promise to Abram and gave the initial call to Abram and called him out of Ur and then out of Haran to come to a land he was going to show him. God gave promises. Chapter 12 of, of Genesis. Later in chapter 12, when he gets there, God gives, reiterates the promise and gives a little more information, but it's not bad information. It's good stuff. There's a little more. See, what happens is the promise keeps getting better. There's increasing blessings. The more that God reveals of the promise, you get over to chapter 13 after Lot leaves and and, uh, basically takes all the good stuff. God comes to Abram and repeats the promise and adds more blessings to it. You get to Genesis chapter 15 where God initiates the covenant, formalizes these promises into a covenant and, and God adds more blessings. Here in chapter 17, as God reiterates one more time after this 14 years of silence following that has followed their real failure with Hagar, what we find is God adds more blessings. If we compare this to what has come before, what we discover is that in back at the beginning, God said, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now God says, You're going to be the father of many, a multitude of nations. In verse 6, he says that kings are going to come from you. In verse 7, God says this is going to be an everlasting covenant with you and with your descendants. A covenant forever. Then in verse 7, God says there's going to be a special relationship. I will be your God and the God of your descendants. Abram and his descendants will have a special relationship with God and that really is at the heart of this covenant. It is the great blessing. The great blessing isn't land. It's not descendants. It's not kings. The great blessing is a relationship with God. The greatest title that I think anyone can ever have is the one that is given to Abram where the Scripture calls him the friend of God. That men can have a connection and a relationship with God is an astounding thought. 
What does it really mean? What would it really mean if God is your God? Prophet Jeremiah gives us a little insight into that. Actually, God tells us what it means as God speaks through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 32, God says this, They will be my people and I will be their God. I will never stop doing good for them or doing them good. And I will assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart and soul. Think about that for a minute. John Piper gives a great comment on that verse. John Piper says, It boggles the mind to try to imagine what it must mean if the God who made the planets and the stars and the galaxies and the molecules and the protons and the neutrons and the electrons rejoices to do you good with all His heart and with all His soul. If God is for you, and all His omnipotence and all His omniscience are engaged all the time to do good for you in all the circumstances of your life. I think He has very eloquently nailed it. If God is for you, God says that you're my people and I will never stop doing good for you. Creator God of all the universe (laughs) will never stop doing good for you. There's some more good news. No more grace that comes out of this. It's actually not in this verse, but it comes, it's implied when God says that out of Abram there's going to be blessing to all the nations of the earth. That was part of the earlier covenant, but here. It says that Abram is going to be the father of nations. And indeed, physically, he becomes the father of nations. But there's more than that. You see, from the beginning, God had planned that Abram, that through Abram would come Jesus Christ. Abram's seed, Abram's descendant would be Jesus, the one who would ultimately be the Savior of the world, and that though everyone who will trust in Christ will ultimately become an heir of Abram's promise and share in the blessings of the covenant. Paul in Galatians wrote this. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, God's grace went to this fallible man, Abram, And God reaffirms this covenant. And the covenant keeps getting better. And the covenant is going to not only to Abraham, but to Abraham's seed, his his descendants. And it's an everlasting covenant. And it's a covenant of relationship. And the good news is, for all of us who aren't Abram's physical descendants, is that the Scripture tells us that if we belong to Christ, for all of us who trust in Christ, we become heirs of the covenant. We have this relationship with God. The Apostle Paul wrote it to the Romans as well. Therefore, he says, this promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, he's speaking of the Jews, but also to those Gentiles who are of the faith of Abraham. 
He is the Father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He's quoting right here from this passage. And he's speaking of you and me right here when he tells Abram, I will make you the father of many nations. You're included in that. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. (laughs) Okay. For all of you who know the kids' song. But there's marvelous truth in that. It's not just a little ditty. It's marvelous truth. It is the grace of God in this promise, this covenant with Abraham is not just some dusty little theological thing that's back there in the Old Testament that we go, oh yeah, that's nice. There's an Abrahamic covenant. No. It's there as the promise which begins the process, which provides the means for you and I through faith in Christ to become sons of Abraham and share in the joy of a relationship with God where God says, I am your God. You are my people. John says, now we are the children of God. Peter says, we who are not a people have now become the people of God. I'll say this this morning. Are you an heir to the promise of Abraham? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, God invites you today to have a relationship with Him. An eternal inheritance in heaven forever. Heaven not just being a place of clouds and and wispy stuff. Heaven is... When you go to the end of the book, to the book of Revelation, you find that heaven is a... There's a new heavens and a new earth recreated earth and it's amazing it's perfect and we live in a very physical reality in a glorified bodies forever and ever god offers that today not because you are good abraham wasn't good but because god is gracious And it comes through trusting in Jesus Christ who has paid for your sin and my sin. If you've never trusted Him, God calls to you today. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. And not only does this passage tell us about the grace of God's promise, it also informs us about the certainty of God's promise. It's been 14 years, apparently, since God last spoke. What has happened in the meantime? Well, the Scripture doesn't record anything. But I can tell you a couple of things that have happened in the meantime. For one thing, Abraham and Sarah are now 14 years older. That's a big deal. Abraham, it says here, is 99, and Sarah is 89 years old. And if we go over into the next chapter, into chapter 18, what we discover is that Sarai has gone into menopause, just in case you weren't sure. So what has happened is, for sure, is having a child with Sarai is now impossible. The promise isn't possible. And so now when God comes in verse 16 
and says that Sarai is going to have a child, Abraham literally falls over and falls to the ground. God says, I will bless her, Sarai, and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, of kings, of peoples will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. So it says in verse 17. Abraham falls face down and he begins even to laugh. He laughs to himself as he's laying there on the ground. I mean, that's not going to happen. Ishmael has grown up. They've grown accustomed to him and to Hagar in their household. They have by now focused their hopes and their thoughts for the future upon Ishmael. And Abram is going, you know, come on, will a child be born to one who's a hundred? Will Sarai have a child at ninety? Oh Lord, verse 18, he says, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abram knows the train has left the station for a child through Sarai. God, that's a great idea. But it's too late. But you know God's timing is never too late. From our perspective, sometimes it appears that way, but from God's perspective, it never is. God has gotten Abram and Sarai right where He wants them. Right in the midst of an impossible situation. God promised a son. And God now promises a son through Sarai when it's impossible. And God says down in verse 21, He says, by this time next year. When God appears to Abram in this chapter, go back to verse 1. First of all, it's a shock, the grace of God coming in. Secondly, God introduces Himself by a new name. A name that hasn't been used before on the pages of Scripture. God says here in verse 1, God says, I am God Almighty. Some of you will recognize the Hebrew name when you hear it. He says, I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai, the God who who can do anything, the God who is our supply and our who can provide our needs. He is Almighty means that God is able to do anything He desires. And in the next chapter, when Sarai will hear this news that she's going to have a baby, she laughs. And God asks a rhetorical question of her. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. So we will notice if you go through this chapter and you you check it out, what you will see is that Time and time again, there's this phrase that's used. God says, I will. 
Over a dozen times in this one chapter, God says, I will. I will. Because He is El Shaddai. The one who can do the impossible. He is the one who is the Lord over every molecule, every atom, every electron, as John Piper said. If there were in this universe one rogue molecule, God would not be God. God would not be God the Almighty. There is nothing that is out of His sovereign control. And so when God says, Abram, I am El Shaddai, He's saying there is nothing impossible. So I wonder, dear brothers and sisters, why do we worry and why do we fret about the size of our difficulties and the impossibilities of our situations? Some of you here this morning have situations in your life and you, you think that they're a big problem and you, you tend to be overwhelmed by them. Some of you think your situation is impossible. But not to El Shaddai. Why do we fear about our inabilities and our inadequacies? For as those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, His God is our God. And His name is El Shaddai. Our God loves to use the inept and the inadequate and the unqualified and the unlikely to accomplish His plan in improbable and unlikely, even impossible situations. That is our Almighty God. God loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. When you read from page after page after page in the Scripture, you'll see it exemplified in the lives of God's people. But it's not just the people of the Scripture and it's not just the people of history past. It's what God wants to do in your life and in my life today. Ordinary people accomplishing extraordinary things. And so as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And He's chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And He's chosen the lowly things of this world to and the despised things of this world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before Him. The weaker you are and the more unlikely and the more impossible your situation, the greater the opportunity for God to be glorified. Which is why the Apostle Paul says, therefore I would rather glorify in my infirmities and in my weakness. You and I can rest in the fact that our Almighty God is at work in any and every situation to accomplish His plan and His purpose through us. You know that verse, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, that all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to His purpose. What moves someone to put themselves in danger for the gospel of Christ? Because we serve El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And if God calls us to move, we move and we go into danger because God has a purpose and God has a plan. 
And God will accomplish His purpose, even the impossible thing of bringing the persecutors to Jesus Christ. And so, as those dear folks in that Indian church there called for us, pray for those who are persecuted and also pray for the persecutors. For El Shaddai is busy bringing people to Him out of impossible situations. So there's the grace of God's promise and there's the certainty of God's promise. There also is in this little verse here and in this whole section, there are responsibilities of the promise. I go back to to verse 1. And by the way, just one little phrase I meant to say is our almighty God will accomplish everything He has purposed for us and He will deliver on everything that He has promised to us. Good work. Back in verse 1, God gives two commands to Abram. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Two commands. Walk before me and be blameless. Then God says, I'll confirm. I'll establish this. Some of you may think, wait a minute. Pastor, I remember a few weeks ago we were in chapter 15 where God formalizes His promises to Abram in a covenant. And if you remember, if you were here, that God had Abram bring these animals and He prepared them in the special form of an eastern covenant where the animals were cut and the pieces of the animal were arranged in half. And, and at the end of the day, God causes Abraham to go into a sleep and God passes between the animals signifying that this covenant is on me. No strings attached. God is going to keep this covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. And yet here God is saying, hey, Abram, walk before me and be blameless and I'll establish or make my covenant with you. And we wonder, wait a minute, you know, is, is God doing kind of a used car salesman thing here? Slipping something into the contract? Changing the terms? What we thought they were aren't quite the terms. Oh yeah, there's this little thing. Adding some conditions. Abram, you do this and then I'll do this. Is that what's happening here? Because at first glance, at first read, that's what it seems couple of observations very quickly. First of all, when we go back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, and then we go to Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, both of them state and they affirm that Abraham was justified when he believed God. It says it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was, in our way of saying it, Abraham was saved at the moment he believed and that is, as you go on through the, through the covenant in chapter 15, the basis of the covenant is that Abraham is justified. He is a believer. His faith is what saves him. Not these works. So this isn't about these works here. Walk before me and be blameless. Isn't something Abraham has to do to be saved. Secondly, the covenant was made and it was ratified back in Genesis chapter 15 and it cannot be changed now. Just like in a court of law, if, 
if you make a contract with someone and you both sign on the dotted line and they go and add some lines to it after you're done, that won't hold up in a court of law, nor does it hold up before a righteous God. The covenant is already made. Thirdly, in relation to that, as we read this where it says, when God says here in verse 2, I will confirm my covenant, what that sounds to in our modern ears, and by the way, some of your translations may say, I will make my covenant, or some of your translations may read, I will establish my covenant. In our ears, that sounds like, well, God's now going to do what He did back in chapter 15 and write out the covenant and formalize it. But actually, in the Hebrew, there's a little different connotation. It's not that God is going to make the covenant. He already made it back in chapter 15. The emphasis of this word in the Hebrew is that God is going to put it into motion. God is going to set this covenant into action. He's going to act upon it. God is about, in other words, these are commands for Abram to obey, but they are not conditions of the covenant. As God is about to start activating the covenant here with the birth of of a son, it's going to come up in, in a couple of chapters a year from now. God isn't adding conditions, but rather what God is doing is stating the proper way for someone to live who has a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. What difference should it make to be, to be called by God, to be saved by God, and to be blessed by God? What difference should it make for Abraham, God says, walk before me and be blameless? By the way, All of this is exactly the same for those of us who live on this side of the cross. For those of us living in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, it is exactly the same for us. We are saved not by our works, but by faith. Paul in Romans chapter 4 is making that point very clear as he goes back to Abram for the example. Abram was saved by faith, so are we. It is not our good works that save us. We know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by God's grace that we are saved through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God. So no one can boast. There are no conditions on our salvation. There is nothing that we can do to become saved and there's nothing that we can do to stay saved. It is all a gift of God by His grace that we receive only by faith faith by trusting in Jesus Christ. And yet, with that true, as we go through the New Testament, is not the New Testament full of commands for you and me as believers about how we should live? Even Colossians chapter 1, it says, as you have received Christ, so walk in Him. It is a command. Actually, the same thing that Abram's told to do here, walk before me. We're told to walk in Christ. The New Testament tells for you and me to be perfect. Abraham here is told to be blameless. So what is said here to Abram is exactly the same for you and me. What does it mean to walk before God? It means to be obedient to Him, to be faithful to Him. 
Matter of fact, as we read from 1 John earlier in our scripture reading, it says that to love God is to obey His commandments. If we love Him, we obey His commandments. We can't separate those things. To walk before God is to be obedient and faithful to Him. It's, it's walking, by the way, not jogging or running. Something any of us can do. We can walk. A little bit, it's moving step by step, following God's Word day by day, even when we don't understand what He's doing or why why He says do this. And God has, by the way, given Abraham some difficult things here. We don't have time to look at them very deeply. Two things I just note very quickly. One thing is God gives Abram a new name, Abraham. His name Abram meant exalted father. By the time we... We meet Abraham, he, or Abram, he's 75 years old, probably been married 40 or 50 years and childless. Up until the incident with Hagar, at that point he's 85 years old and still childless. And so for some half a century or so, the man with the name Exalted Father has lived with a name where every time somebody would meet him, they'd say, hello, what's your name? Abram. In the Hebrew pronunciation, Abram. Oh, exalted father. How many children do you have? None. (laughs) Great. Good name. Fourteen years before this, through Abram and Sarai's poor plan, they solved that problem. Now he has a son. And so for the last 14 years, when somebody asked him, what's your name? He says, Abram. And they said, oh, how many children? One. Oh, well, good. Does he exalt you? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> now God says, Ab- Abram, you're going to get a new name. What's your new name? Abraham. Which means father of a multitude. And the jokes start all over again. Because Abram has to now go to all everyone in his household and say, no longer call me Abram, call me Abraham. So that's what it means to get a new name is you have to let everybody know this is my new name. And everybody's scratching their head going, really? <laughs> Father of a multitude? <laughs> nice, Abram. Desert sons taking its toll. Because God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And you and I are part of that promise. Secondly, God institutes the sign of the covenant of circumcision for Abraham and for everyone in his household Abraham at 99 undergoes this surgery of circumcision and so do all of the men in his household, all the males, which we know he had a private army of 318 men. We saw that back in in chapter, what was it, 14. So this is a lot of folks that Abraham has to convince. <laughs> Why? Because God said so. Walk before me. That very day, Abraham obeys. God says, be blameless. And he isn't saying be perfect. Rather, the word here means whole or complete. It means not being half-hearted, but being wholehearted. 
It means that we have a heart for God not just on Sunday, but we have a heart for God on Monday and a heart for God on Tuesday and a heart for God on Wednesday and a heart for God on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday. It is who we are. Loving God from the inside out, being all in. That's what God asked of Abraham because of the grace of the covenant and the certainty of the promise. And Abraham, here's the response, and so it is for you and me. For you and me who have been the benefits and the recipients of the grace of the promise and we have the certainty of the blessings as well, God also calls for us to walk with Him, walk before Him, and to be blameless. May that be our aim. Father, we thank You for this passage this morning. As we see what You did in the life of Abraham, we are reminded not only is he the ancestor of our faith, not only is he our spiritual ancestor, he also is our example for us, the one for us to follow. What good news it is that there is grace for Abraham because there are folks here today who need it, actually every one of us. But there may be some here this morning who are in the process of wandering from you. They have strayed away. Lord, you call to them to come back, to walk before you, to be blameless. There's some folks here who just need encouragement this morning. Remember that you are El Shaddai, that you are on our side you are for us, that whatever our circumstances, whatever our situations, whatever our problems, we can look to you, we can rest in you, we can trust in you. There may be even one or two folks here this morning who have never placed their faith and trust in you. May they have understood for the first time just how much you love them and how you provided for them a payment for sin and an eternal destiny in heaven. And may they come and place their faith in You. In Jesus Christ, their Savior. These things we ask in His name.